Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Palkaran. More importantly, I have as my guest today, Dr. Nilma Chitkopeker, who is an associate professor uh, in the Department of History at Jesus and Mary College at Delhi University. We're actually talking about a Penguin Books publication, The Reluctant Family Man. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Raj. Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So the subtitle may give a clue as to what the book's about. It's The Reluctant Family Man, Shiva in Everyday Life. Uh, what what kind of book is this? What is this book about? Well, um, I don't know. When, you know, Penguin was trying to say that they were going to put it in the category of self-help. And I said, that just sounds so cheesy. And they said, no, no, we won't do that. <laughs> we'll just keep it, you know, with mythology and, uh, you know, lifetime, you know, life help life helping kind of books and i don't know what category they put it into but uh, it has a lot of mythology and it has a lot of uh, guidelines how to lead a life which would be uh, more satisfying i'm not saying happy but you know just certain rules and you know whatever you know so the premise of the book is looking to uh, mythologies of shiva um and deriving insights for human life therefrom, correct? That's right, Raj. Absolutely. That's exactly what it's about. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, I have a number of guests on this podcast. Uh, primarily, the podcast is catered towards uh, scholarship or, or new books in the field, various methodologies and, and subfields. It just so happens that I also study um, Hindu mythology. Um and <laughs> many of my private courses um, deal with looking to mythological narratives for insight on human life. So here we are. You, you're uh, uh, you're preaching to the choir, at least in this case. But <laughs> tell us a little bit about what on earth you mean ancient Indian mythology and human life. Why are those things connected? What are you talking about? Well, I've spent a lifetime absolutely fascinated by the myths that I've been reading. I've been, I, I basically am a Puranic scholar, if you could call me that. And I have been studying the Purans and the myths therein for a very long time. And I just felt it, it was time that, I mean, actually, it's not time. It started more than 10 years ago that I wanted to, uh, you know, relate these myths to people from all kinds of uh, walks of life, not just academia. So that's how it all started about 11 years ago in 2010, actually. Uh, we made films. There was a young entrepreneur and he wanted me to, you know, make films on me talking about Shiva. And that's how it all started. Those films were sold worldwide. It was his business. And uh, I was just made the main, I was the only contributor actually to begin with. And I was very hesitant, Raj. I have to tell you that was the time when, you know, I thought that I was, you know, letting down my academic circles by doing something. I thought it was cheesy, tacky, you name it. But uh, he was, he's a very dear friend of my son's and he insisted. And, oh, I'm so glad I did it eventually. <laughs> Let's put it like that. Yeah. Oh, well, 
I know that feeling so, so well. I think uh, listeners of the podcast may have heard this before, but I ended up defending in 2015, and uh, it was a perfect perfect storm. Um, um, uh, shortly thereafter, certain election results rolled out. Uh, the job market is, is not great whatsoever. It's not that one can't get the job, it's that the jobs won't exist. <laughs> um, and so I ended up, um, out of dire necessity, you know, um, uh, marketing to the public, uh, sharing courses. This is my primary livelihood to this day. So I've managed to be a fairly productive, essentially independent scholar. And at this point, it's so, um, to me, it's so meaningful and fruitful to bridge the world of ancient Indian myth and modern Western life. It, it, it's it, uh, irrespective of what my academic path looks like in future, this will stay with me as part of my being. But I remember viscerally feeling like an escort or feeling like, oh, I have to sell myself now. You know, these these myths, I mean, in the, in the four-letter word sense, myth, small m myth, these myths about... You know, money and 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 public public appeal, and you know what? Uh, it's it's taken me some time to realize that really the sweet spot is being really good with the scholarly insights and being able to translate them to people in a practical way. And doing that is is actually a strength in my view, not a weakness. So I'm glad you did. I'm glad Thank you. Did. you. And there seems to be some synchronicity working here since, you know, you didn't really know that that's how I started. Well, I started this particular, for this particular book, I would say my research would go back to 2010. The book I wrote very fast, you know, because Penguin wanted it. It's a commissioned piece of work. But um, uh, the you know, the movies that we made, the videos that we made, they, they were sold worldwide in many countries. And uh, this young person, this entrepreneur, he managed to build up a whole big business. And then he moved on to Ayurveda, which is definitely more <laughs> sustainable than mythology, because we were not doing it to, academic, to the academic world. It was out for anybody. You could be a truck driver. You could be a, you know, a school teacher. You could be just a housewife or whatever you were. You, could, you may want to listen to stories about Ganesha. I did three films, Ganesha, Shiva and The Goddesses. So um, the goddesses was five hours long, Shiva was five hours, and Ganesha was two and a half hours. So we did those, and out of those, uh, the movie on Shiva, that's where this whole reluctant family man, you know, came about. Though I had been giving many talks over the years, and the title was always reluctant because I always use this reluctant family man. It seems to it seems to have resonated with my audiences, and so I used this title. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, uh, typically when I tell Puranic narratives, I, well, I either teach the narratives or um, even if I'm not teaching the narratives, I may draw on them to elucidate a point about uh, all things Indic. Yeah. But when when sharing, talking about Shiva, I'll, uh, I'll say, you know, you know, Parvati is a saint, you know, Shiva doesn't text, he doesn't call for like 10,000 years. You know, it's like, he, you know, every once in a while I'll say, you know, he's the kind of independent, avoidant boyfriend who doesn't call you back. This is Shiva. So, so the title, The Reluctant Family Man, um, it, it resonates because it, it tells you something about the human experience, about behavior, right? About personality types. Obviously, in his case, he's not at the bar. He's getting drunk in other ways, but that's beside the point. You know, either way, poverty is a saint. <laughs> um What's the uh, what's the structure of the book? Like, what is, tell us a bit about what's inside the book. 
Well, uh, so what I did was, since this was going to be a book that I was going to talk a lot about my own experiences and the experience of people I've been talking to over the last few decades, uh, I sort of like, uh, you know, made these, you know, I, I decided, you know, actually the young entrepreneur asked me, can you just tell me, you know, what were the principles by which you've led your life? How do you feel? You know, what are the main principles? Can you just give them to me? And so I sat and I told him, you know, I said things like focus. And then we looked for the Sanskrit. He said, okay, ekakrata. I said, okay, ekakrata. Or, you know, like, uh, you know, I, you need to know your inner nature more than anything else. You know, know yourself. So, swabhava. So I just did, I went about doing that, you know, and I, I believe uh, uh, for one's core being, it's important to have a strong relationship no matter who it's with. So then for samarasa, you know, so I, I had these words in English, which I then translated into Sanskrit. And, um, you know, I said, okay, these are the words and this is how I'm going to write the book. I'm going to divide them into these five chapters. And there's going to be an end goal. And that end goal is something which I read in the Upanishads, you know, when I was visiting OCHS, Oxford, uh, you know, on my first fellowship there. And um, I spent a lot of time with Vedantic uh, scholars. And that's when I really got a full, you know, exposure to the Upanishads. And this whole concept and idea of Unatva, it just struck me as being so beautiful. This whole idea of not feeling fragmented, this whole idea of trying to feel a wholesomeness in yourself. Uh, I sort of like said that that's going to be the end goal for all of us. Is And we're not going to have it steadily in our life, like Shiva never had it steadily in his life. It comes and goes. You feel Punatwa now, something that may happen tomorrow, and you will not feel the Punatwa, but you have to work towards getting back into that space of wholesomeness. So, the so, is, so yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. No, go so ahead. wholesomeness or, or punatwa is mm-hmm. one of the, I'd say there's an introduction and there are six uh, thematic chapters. Punatwa is the last one. You've got one on ekagrata you just mentioned, single fo- single focusedness, um, swabhava, uh, nature. And like, what what are the other themes? Yes, so there's samarasa where there's this equipoise, you know, the kind of uh, feeling you'll have with somebody whom you're very close to, and you know, the relationship, the whole relationship angle. And then there is the very important thing which uh, Shiva needs in his life all the time because it can be quite imbalanced at times. Santulan, the whole idea of not going overboard and you know trying to maintain some kind of balance. And the fifth is actually my favorite because that sort of like uh, encapsulates what Shiva is. If you want to know exactly what he is, he's, he is into and he believes and he needs Vairagya. So the whole idea of detaching yourself, you know. So that is something that I wrote a chapter. One, one chapter is on Vairagya. And then all five of these, if you use them properly in your life uh, with a whole lot of examples thrown in from life and from, you know, experiences and also mythology, then you will arrive at Punatwa. That is the kind of, uh, you know, the kind of, uh, what should I say, what I'm proclaiming uh, a bit, it's a bit, I mean, it's a bit cheeky to be able to say that, but uh, the publishers seem to like it. And um, it seems to have worked, Raj, because I've been getting a lot of feedback on this book. Well, uh, cheeky or not, uh, don't the Shastras themselves say that? <laughs> that? That there is a path to wholeness. Uh, perhaps they don't flesh it out in modern English with examples from from from, uh, from mythology of Shiva. But, you know, isn't that what we're all seeking in certain ways? Um, uh, some element of wholeness. So, I mean, there's so many directions with which we can take this conversation. 
this methodology, right? This, 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 I guess methodology is the best word for it. So just to flesh out for the audience, you use exact, just to flesh out for the audience, you are using examples. You are using uh, narratives from the mythology of Shiva. And you're saying this exemplifies this quality or the significance of this or this theme. Would you say, um, how did this methodology come about for you? Like, where did this start up? Okay, so, well, um, you know, my entire PhD, my PhD thesis was on Shiva. And uh, that was such a long time ago, but that's when I started writing books on Shiva. And I, I went through quite a few of them. And, um, you know, some were just meant for academics, you know, where you look at inscriptions, you look at Qurans, you look at art. So I, as I went along, I just felt that there was so much of richness in Shiva that um, once you, you bring it down, I'm not saying dumb it down, but you bring it down without getting too uh, into, you know, pedant pedantic so you don't get too much into all that and you just simplify some of the stories or some of the aspects of iconography i felt no matter which part of the world i went to to give talks on shiva parvati ganesha that is the shavik uh, you know pantheon i found people it resonated with people people didn't feel that oh this is a hindu god she's talking about or they didn't feel it was sectarian at all people laughed when they should have laughed they didn't allow me to stop talking i would sometimes have 40 minutes and I would go on for two hours. And it was just incredible the kind of uh, reaction one got to these stories. So that's when I knew, Raj, that these stories will resonate with everybody. It doesn't matter. You don't have to be a Hindu. Yeah. That is uh, maybe um, that is the power of myth, right? That, that That's the real power. And it's so difficult to convey. Um, there are... Uh, um, these texts evidence a specific historical horizon or religious ethos, and that's very important, right? They'll tell us much about ancient India, or with 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 narratives at very least imagined, the imaginaire of ancient India, uh, without question. But the real power of the narratives, in my view, is that they tell us about ourselves. They tell us about humans. They tell us about life's big questions, and that need not be packaged. The coconut water can be had without the shell, yeah? It doesn't need to be packaged. You don't need to be espoused to a Brahmanical worldview or practice, for example. Whether you are or not is, is not the point. And I find that there are these two extremes of looking at these narratives as sort of um, religious relics to be understood or taking them as the gospel truth. And uh, they're literally true. And the word myth is not even a word that we can use for these. And there are these two extremes quite often. And the the, the most, in my view, the most compelling and powerful use of these narratives is teasing away what pertains to us over the generations, over cultures. Like what are the, what is it about the human experience that's being talked about? So, would you give us an example or two of some of the stories you've used and how you've used them? Yes, certainly. Well, you know, one one advantage I have is I live in this culture. I live in India. And so many of the students whom I speak to, and I don't teach religion, I teach uh, ancient Indian history. Uh, religion is a very small part. But, you know, I specialize in the history of religion. So I continue to write and I, I speak on it, but I'm not as 
you know, into it the way everyone else, because I teach history. But anyway, so the thing is that um, the, the people here are familiar, Raj, with some, you know, some of the stories, but they will not necessarily know how we have interpreted them or how many ways they can be interpreted and how the artists, you know, the iconography or the artists, you know, contributing to the story. So, for, for instance, when I'm talking about Ekagrata and I'm saying, you know, this one-minded focus that Shiva has the ability to have, you know, and which sort of like replenishes him each time he gets sort of like, you know, gets weakened by all the things that are happening around, you know, that kind of thing you can see in, you can see that happening in a myth like the Samudra Mantan, that is the churning of the ocean. And when the churning of the ocean is taking place, all the gods are running hither, thither. And who do they eventually have to go to, to act almost like a savior is Shiva. And we talk, we talk about him being the destroyer, but he's actually the savior because he's sitting there meditating with all that wonderful meditative power that he's collected in within him. And he knows exactly what to do. He knows what solutions to provide to the world, to save the world, whether it is the swallowing up of the kalput, the poisonous smoke, whatever it is, it's not Vishnu, it's not Ram, it's not any of the other gods, it's Shiva, they all run. And of course, we know it's in the sectarian Qurans that are dealing with Shiva. We know that all is there, the version of Qurans. No, but, but, have, but, uh, but never, yeah. nevertheless, yeah. nevertheless, of course, yeah. of course, this will evidence sectarianism, of course, but there's more than that there. Shiva is the destroyer. He is destroying the most destructive force. It's the same with the myths of Durga or the myths of, of the mother. She destroys the destructive. She destroys, right? Ultimately, that destructive role is transformative and benefic in some way. And so, of course, it makes sense they would use Shiva to neutralize the poison. Who else possibly could? Yeah. That's right. Or, That's right. Yeah. Please, I, I interrupted. I, no, no, it's perfectly I, Please go ahead. <laughs> I can sense that you are getting excited because this is your field. And so you're, <laughs> you must be wanting to say so much. And please, Raj, feel free to say whatever you have. So, you know, when, we, when we're talking, for instance, about Samarasa, we're talking about the relationship between Shiva and Parvati. I mean, you start off by saying she was like a saint. I mean, she has so much. She's so gutsy. She's so autonomous. And what is so interesting is that within the whole marriage, the field of marriage, she's not an autonomous goddess when she's Parvati when she's with Shiva and the kind of quarrels they have and the way she gives it back to him. I mean, I, I love to talk about that wonderful scene in which they're playing Chaucer. When she dis, uh, what should I say? disrobes him, makes him take off everything, his Rudrakshmala, his crescent moon, his loincloth. I mean, she, she gives it back to him because all his cronies are sitting there. Nara Dinola sitting there and saying that you are che cheating and you are you're trying to cheat with someone who is invincible. And so you see the sectarian conflict going between going on between the Shabbite followers and the Parvati followers, because she was a great goddess before she was spouse, right? So, you know, when you when you talk about these, and then I remember the first lecture I gave in America after my first book was out, and there was a student there. This was in um, Western Michigan University in Ann Arbor. And there was a student there. He said, oh, I see. They play strip poker, <laughs> you know, because she made them take off. She said, take off that loincloth. And then he said, oh, you know, God's played strip poker. And I just stopped me. And I said, well, if you want it, in a manner of speaking. But she didn't allow him to take it off because better sense prevailed. The moment she, he saw that she was forcing him to do so, look at Shiva. He's actually going to take it off. When she taunts him, she said, you're not scared of nudity. You go around everywhere nude. What about the Daruvan? 
in the Daruman, in those forests, you went around and you seduced the ascetics, not the ascetics, the Vaishnavs, you know, Rishi's wives. And uh, you're not scared of me. Did you take it off. And then better sense reveals and she said, keep it on. I'm not going to make you take it off. But, you know, there's this relationship between the husband and the wife where it's a give and take. It's egalitarian. She has her point of view. She expresses it again and again and again. And so does he. I don't see that between Lakshmi and Vishnu, for instance. And I don't want to go into that field. But I'm just saying that look at Shiva and Parvati. Look at how, how their quarrels are so entertaining and, and so robust and so colorful. And that they, they make me feel glorious when I read about their relationship. Let me put it. Lakshmi and Vishnu, it's a very different sort of archetypal relationship. And and, and Lakshmi represents something, uh, a, a very specific, narrow, rarefied uh, band of the human experience. It's, you know, purified. Um, 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 uh, there's so much I could say, but I won't because uh, um, what we'll say is that the... Uh, there's so much dynamism, obviously, between Shiva and Parvati, and the, the, the narratives are so colorful, so compelling. Um, what's another aspect or, or tale of Shiva that you've used in the book? Well, you know, when I was talking about Swarupa, uh, you know, Sobhava, so, you know, I didn't actually have a story story to tell, except that, you know, uh, his wife, his first wife's, uh, both his wife's uh, parents were horrified at the way he tended to dress. So I like to talk about that, that he had his own personality. He didn't get taken in by uh, the riches of other gods. He just was so simple all the time. He had, you know, a very, uh, even his friends were, you know, all um, antinomian, so to say, and, you know, going against the grain. And uh, I thought that outlandishness that Shiva represented to the society at that time when the Qurans were being written, I am very, I marvel at that. And I marvel at the fact that even to this day in India, people worship this Shiva when they see him in a tiger skin skirt, when they see him bare chested, when they see him with Chattamakuta, that is those snail-like hair, not combed, just, you know, unkempt, and everything about him. You know, it's 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 this kind of, you know, the fact that these two things can exist. You can have him as a great Mahadeva, the greatest God, the God who was never born, the oldest God, perhaps, of this civilization. And yet you can have him with all these so-called antinomian, you know, kind of characteristics and attributes. And I find that fascinating that the Indian mind is able to accept that. So the narratives, I'm, I, I can't remember. I think I was saying in a tutorial earlier, um, maybe today, that some of the tropes you see in the Puranas and the Mahabharata, like, I don't know if they were drinking Soma, or what they were doing, <laughs> they're they're just they're endlessly gripping in ways that you can't imagine, and and so yes, I definitely um, uh, resonate with with how compelling these tales are. One of the key functions which make them um, compelling, but also can pre- present barriers for exegesis, is that they intentionally preserve paradox. Folks don't get this. They're trying to make a decision, and no, the narrative is in the narrative is crafted to preserve the tension between the outer and the inner, or ascetic ideology and 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 and, and you know, Brahmanic ideology. Like there, you know, clearly Shiva is, you know, he's this outcast, you know, yogi shaman, like you know, this this uncool dude. He's always at the yoga studio, and then you have this this high class family in Delhi bringing him home for tea, and they're like, "What are you doing with him?" And well, he he is following his Baba daddy. 
<laughs> what about in the crematorium, the, the cremation grounds? He's there as well. And he's got the ashes from the dead bodies all over him. Like he besmears himself. So there are things which are really like in a way, if you think repellent or repugnant or whatever you want to hear. And there, there's so many sides to the Shiva that um, I just think that's why, I, you know, you can see the paradoxical uh, trait in my title, the reluctant family man. He is reluctant because he's a renunciant. He does not want to get married. He has to get married for the sake of this universe, that they, that he would have a child who would defeat the great demon Taraka because, you know, the goddess whom he's going to marry is powerful. He's powerful. So the whole idea behind it is to sort of like save the world in a way. And so he has to get married even though he's reluctant. But he does not stop his trait of going away with his friends, going into the forest, going into the mountains, meditating, you know, whether having soma, rust, whatever he's doing, long periods away from his wife where she experiences deep loneliness and we all know how you know Ganesha was born out of that deep loneliness so it seems like a very uh, modern uh, you know a man who's spending too much of time in the bar or in the pubs or something I mean you know if you want to really look at it like that <laughs> well, uh, listen I don't think any culture has a license on AWOL men you know <laughs> <laughs> I think this is something that is, and not all men, obviously, uh, what I'm saying is that there is a strand, there's a strand of experience that is well encapsulated in this mountain man, this, 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 this rough or, or, or shamanic figure who is Shiva. And in addition to, in, in, obviously, the, the myth makers drew on their own experiences. And obviously, the uh, chances are very good that most of these texts were written by men, so they will potentially understood that impulse having said that there's also the story of the integration of shiva into the fold the integration of this figure known as shiva into the vedic fold who finally gets a share of the sacrifice who finally gets a wife and a family there's this beautiful sort of um, um uh, in history of religions you're seeing shiva is integrated and now he's fully part of the vedic sacrifice but that wasn't always the way because he was this you know uh, wild, drunken, you know, or, 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 or aloof, um, 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 aspirant, you know, um, what, what's next? We, 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 how, how will you further, uh, whether you will or not, how will you further develop this, uh, work or strand or method? Uh, well, Raj, you know, this is, I think the third or fourth book on Shiva that I have written, and so I have a biography of Shiva as well. Before that, it's called Rudra, the idea of Shiva, also brought out by Penguin. Uh, and so I've talked about uh, Shiva at length through the eyes and uh, through the thoughts of all these gods like Vishnu, Ganesha, Sati, Parvati. So, you know, I've, I've pretty much, I'm thinking, do I have something more to say about Shiva? Because it's been so much, you know, the films are there. I've given so many talks. But let me see, once I finish what I'm doing right now, maybe I'll explore a little further and uh, have a look at uh, what else I can say about Shiva. But all I can say is that it, the stories are delightful. And it's not just the stories. I always like to bring in the iconography. The iconography is delightful. You know, whether you're seeing him in his Dakshinamurti form, or you're seeing him as Gauri Shankar, or you're seeing the Lingam, you're seeing the Chaturmukh, you're seeing the Panchmukh. Everything has to be explained. And what's wonderful is that there is a myth behind almost every iconograph, every every iconographic type. And so I really like the fact that we can bring in the art as well. And for me, it's so interesting because he, he's a flourishing god in India even today. So it's not something that I'm talking about, something in the past. It's not something that people don't know a little bit about. They just get more. They get, you know, they learn more because 
as you know, we don't have uh, religious studies as such in India. Sadly enough, we don't have that. So even if I were to maybe one day when I retire, I'll, I'll try doing something more on a larger scale just with the history of religion. But right now I teach history. I have a very good job in the university. I, I have to fulfill that. But um, so people don't get to know what our academics actually saying about uh, all these things. So I really feel nice that I, I feel happy that I have this opportunity to put across some of the theories of what academics are saying in a, in a way that will appeal to all the people. I mean, I like to have this bridge between the public and the academia. It's very nice to bridge this gap. And uh, I, I always feel that they're so intelligent. I get wonderful letters from people who are in other fields, who are engineers, who are architects, and who have liked the books and um, write back to me. And right now during the pandemic, I have heard from quite a few people that this book has given them a lot of solace, especially when they have lost uh, family members to the disease. And uh, they have actually written to me and told me, thank you for the book. We're reading it for the second time. And the chapter on or the chapter on Ekagrata is really helping us. So I feel very happy that I've written a book that is appealing to people in this time of need. Raj. Well, it's deeply fulfilling. It's deeply fulfilling to draw on the power of myth as a self for these troubled times. That's uh, that's profoundly fulfilling, I imagine. Um, the one thought that comes to mind is that's the, what you just described about making available um, the, the fruit of scholarly labor to a wider public, that very much is the foundational impulse behind the New Books Network, the whole conglomeration of podcasts. Uh, there are a number of, of, of channels. Uh, mine pertains to books on, it used to be called Hindu Studies, it's now Indian Religions, to make room for, for example, Sikhism, Jainism, um, um, Islam and Christianity in India. Yeah, But there are channels uh, in the New Books Network on, on, on history, philosophy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why it resonates because that impulse to bridge, you know, uh, what we do as scholars in terms of the production and the advancement of human knowledge and uh, everyday life. So that is the podcast. It's it's there are specialists who listen. Indeed, uh, the majority of the people who listen are people who are just interested in knowing what scholars are coming up with. They're interested in a field of study, um, and more and more that. Uh, you mentioned OCHS and passing. That's one of the things I love about um, being involved in the in the continuing studies department. There, it's a good bridge between knowledge production and um, public interest. Was there, was there anything else about the book that you wanted to share before we close today? Um, well, uh, so it was it, it was something that I didn't think would happen. I mean, I didn't think that any uh, serious or any good publishing house would want to do it. I'm just glad that they were interested. I'm glad that they did such sharp editing in the sense that I didn't ever become too, um, you know, uh, too wordy or too, you know, like uh, too much of jargon in it. it. It was just the right amount so that any intelligent person can pick up the book and read it. They helped me a lot through that whole process. Since it was out, you know, uh, in 2019, March 2019, since then there have been people who have been read it and come back. And it's actually my first audio book. It's been made into an audiobook. So that's another thing I'm excited about, that people will be able to drive in their cars or people will be able to go for walks and be able to, you know, listen to the book. So uh, all I have to say is that um, it, it, it is a book that is, you know, perhaps providing a path to those people who need it. 
it's not for everyone. There might be people who feel they're very evolved and they really don't <laughs> you know, need to pick up a book like this. But I have found that whether it is teenagers, people at the you know, age group of 19, or whether it is a person who's 60 years old. In fact, I was asking the other day a person who's in her 60s. And I said, why did you like the book? So she said, you know, there's some things that we may have done in our past when we were younger. And this gives us a perspective on it. Because each time I've analyzed a myth, I've sort of like related it to our everyday life, you know, what people may be going through in their partnerships, their marriages, for instance, that's in Samaras. Or when you somebody dies, so how do you manage to detach yourself from that eventually? What did Shiva do when Sati died? So, you know, just to show how Shiva was a bawling, you know, crying his eyes out, man, he's, he's supposed to be this macho virile. God, but at the same time, look at the kind of tenderness you see uh, when you see him dying, uh, you know, crying after, uh, you know, absolutely uncontrollably after his first wife Sati dies. It's, you know, it's amazing to to see those uh, you know descriptions. So you know, and how he deals with it, and how Vishnu comes and helps him, and how he knows he has to detach himself from all that. So you know, uh, these I, I try to take up lessons. Uh, from these myths. And I think that is something that when people read it, I hope that they get an idea. Those who don't know much about it, those who do know, I hope they can see another perspective and they can see an, my own interpretation. There's a lot of me, I have to say, in the book because uh, they did want me to talk about experiences of people I know or you know what I may have experienced myself. So it's a combination of the mythology there's not much history. I've not included too much history, but there is some art. There is some mythology. There's a lot of mythology and there's a lot of experiences. And so the readings come from the Upanishads. They come from the Qurans. Um, they come a lot from even from some very colorful, wonderful inscriptions that I read when I was doing my PhD. I have sort of like taken, I've taken material from different places, Raj. And uh, that's all I want to say about the book. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And thank, thank you for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Raj. It's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed myself. I've met a fellow traveler uh, who is doing the same thing. And uh, all the best to you. All the best to you in your endeavor. Thank you. For those of you listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Nilima Ajitkopeka, who is Associate Professor at Delhi University on her new Penguin Books publication, um, The Reluctant Family Man, Shiva in Everyday Life. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, keep listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating the power of myth. Take care.